and goes on the streets. Just kidding. What are we doing today, Steven? Really tuning your own horn. I'm not. I'm not. We're doing something crazy. That's for sure. Yeah, we are. I was just telling you before we started that like every, it's been a while since we saw this, but every single frame and scene of this movie has been imprinted into my brain because it was such a wild ride. And because we're such fans of this auteur director, normally we'd be, I don't know, biting at the bit to make this into a huge long episode and I'd interweave it with a bunch of music from the score because it was so insane and it would be what is known as a uh, analysis episodes. But it's not an analysis episode, it's gonna be a review episode because we don't have any time anymore. Yeah, you're grown up. I'm a grown boy. So, what are we doing today? We are doing a cast, a pop cast. Yeah, yes. About Ari Aster's third feature film. Is it really only his third? He made Hereditary in 2018. He didn't make one before Hereditary? No I features. Thought he, thought he did. He did plenty of shorts. No uh, features. Notorious okay. short films. And then he blew onto the scene with Hereditary. Yeah, that was a good movie. I mean, some people were really losing their heads for that movie. <laughs> And then less than a year later, less than a year later, or about a year later, he did and released Midsommar, which... That he did. From pre-production to releasing your film in a year, coming off of the premiere of another one of your films, absolutely insane. And those Especially two, of that caliber. Yeah. And that one-two punch solidified Ari Aster as A24's, you know... Poster child. Really, honestly. And they have an incredible team of creators coming up but Ari became basically like the guy he's the guy and now that Robert Eggers is working with other distributors I think focus features uh Ari is basically I mean the guy this film <laughs> is credit enough to their relationship because I think what happened is a24 essentially gave him carte blanche carte blanche carte blanche tomato tomato carte blanche sounds like something you put in your cake to make it rise anyway, <laughs> anyway this was uh a24's most expensive film to date and they actually it was not just a distribution it was the production by a24 i think it was something like 40 million so their most expensive movie uh with one of their most i think spectacular bombs at the box office but i feel like everybody was on the same page that that was how it was going to go and a24 let ari do it because they wanted to retain that relationship with ari who was there as we have established, more or less their golden child. You think A24 knew that Bo was Afraid wasn't going to be a, a success? I think there was a point before release where they understood this movie was not going to be the critical darling that Hereditary wow. and Midsommar, and not just critical darling, but I think those take. films were relatively a box office huge successes too. But Bo is Afraid did not do very well. And we're here to talk about why. Uh, well... We're also here to talk about the movie because... And in doing so, you'll figure out why. You and, yeah, yeah, I guess so. You and I both liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, it's, it'll probably be in my top 10 of the year. Easy top three for me. It's and not probably top three for me, but it's probably in my top 10. We haven't seen... There are so many good movies yet to come out this year. Like and, Haunted uh, Mansion. Uh, all right. <laughs> I'm very excited for that, but it's not going <laughs> to... You're excited for Haunted Mansion? Yes. You got... What? You got... Listen, Owen Wilson... And Lakeith Stanfield. So many things are blowing my mind right now. I mean, also, it looks pretty fun with all the ghouls and stuff. I and, did and not the director, expect... director, directed Dear White People. 
Well, there you go. Which is still a commentary on cult yeah. culture. I don't know. <laughs> Bit of a tangent there. Uh, but we're, we're back to RES. Movies here. that are coming out. Yeah. I think Bo's Afraid will, will be up, up there for me. I really enjoyed it. I went back to see it a second time in cinemas. And it was funny when I saw it a second time. I took my brother and we sat next to this gal. We we <laughs> pretty empty theater first of all. We we ended the movie and she turns to us and she's like, "Did you guys like that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have any idea what just happened?" <laughs> it's a long movie that asks a lot. Uh, it's a it's a spectacularly absurd film, and Dari Aster, I think has delighted in uh, yeah. the polarizing response and he's described it himself. This was, you know, the kind of reception he was looking for, but he's described it as like a, essentially like a Jewish Lord of the Rings style odyssey uh, where, or he, he's, he's described it in a few different ways that always made me laugh. One is like, if you got a, <laughs> uh, a kid high on, like Xanax or something and asked him to go to the grocery store and buy you some groceries. Uh, but it's true. It, it is like a, it's like a four act odyssey. Joaquin Phoenix is this guy who is riddled with trauma from the relationship he had with his parents, specifically his, his mother. Yeah, yeah. Cause his father was absent or was um, he, or was he, <laughs> or was he in the attic? And he is a total basket case at this point in his life. And in this film, he's in his forties, I, I believe. Yeah. I mean, he's walking Phoenix age. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's so close to 50. Yeah. And, uh, he has these wild adventures that dip in and out of the surreal. You have no idea how much of it is actually happening within the context of the film. Before we get further into it, can we talk about just who's in it? It's Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Joaquin is... In the front. He is Bo. And Bo is... And he is afraid. And Bo is afraid. Okay, so we have Joaquin as Bo Wasserman. And that name, that surname is important for some plot elements... Wasserman. His mother, Mona Wasserman, is played by Patti Lapone. Incredible powerhouse Patti Lapone. True. Who you may remember from things like The Witness. We also have Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane as Grace and Roger, as a couple that Bo runs into in the second act, and they sort of uh, more yeah. or less abduct him. Great to see Nathan Lane again. I hadn't seen him in a while. He's super funny. Yeah. Um, we also have. Parker Posey, who still is as spectacular as ever. And she's... Yes, she's in this movie. Getting up there. Um, (laughs) What? (laughs) Young Bo was played by Armin Nahapitian, Nahapitan, Teen Bo. Uh, The younger version of his mother was played by Zoe Lister-Jones. Parker Posey's character, Elaine, the younger version of her was played by Julia Antonelli. And and who played the penis monster? I couldn't t- I couldn't say <laughs> Stephen, but there was a penis monster in this movie. But that is neither here nor there. We also had Richard. Is it up there though? It's up there. It's in. <laughs> it's up there. We also had a couple cameos or smaller roles by Stephen McKinley Henderson, who plays the therapist. Love that guy. He was in Devs. Yeah. Oh he, right. He's also in Dune. Yeah, yeah. As and, the Mentat. The Mentat. Thufir Hawat. I'm excited to see him again in part two. And then uh, we also had Richard Kind as Dr. Cohen. Yeah. Uh, like Nathan Lane, super good to see Richard Kind again. It's funny that Ari pulled these people out um, because they're like incredible actors. And 
Yeah. You just don't see him very often. Yeah. And then totally. there were some other little performances that were great. And just a shout out to Bill Hader, who played the UPS guy. Oh, that's right. On the phone. On the phone, yeah. Towards the beginning in a very hilarious scene. So before we continue. I love Bill. Yeah, <laughs> He's yeah my I, know, favorite. I know you do. Before we continue, let's play a song, we, which every podcast, except for some of them, <laughs> we, <laughs> we break to play a song. And for this one, might as well play something from goth babe because why not all right so from goth babe we're gonna hear a song called driving south and uh blood cultures is featured on it so (laughs) it's a fitting gothic bloody insaneness it's perfect for our cast yep yes Thanks, Gabe, for uh, being here. Being here. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Bo is Afraid. Yeah. We're going to jump into it. Did we already mention this is a three-hour film, Stephen? No. I can't. I honestly don't even remember that. It felt like a two-hour movie to me. I'm glad you say that because a lot of people yeah. couldn't stand it. <laughs> they, they felt it. They felt it. Uh, as I was mentioning before, this is a story of Joaquin Phoenix reeling. From childhood trauma. Tra- yep, childhood trauma. He's living in some urban area when we pick up with him in the first act. Mm-hmm. And we follow him through a series of increasingly strange and bizarre and, for him, unfortunate encounters. And strenuous. He's on this odyssey. Stressful. Yeah, super stressful for Bo. He and is stressful for the audience. I think I was saying before he's like a basket case. He has so much anxiety. He reminds me of myself in many ways. Um and while we were watching the film, <laughs> after the first half hour, where he's basically afraid to go outside, and every everything all the way down to just going across the street to get water is 
an insanely stressful task. Yeah. Which I feel having self prescribed social anxiety. I turned to Gabe after a half hour and said, I feel like I, this movie understands me, you yeah. know, and in a large way. And what's crazy is I don't think most people would read that about me, No, but I definitely feel that inwardly. Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I think that is, well, I think that was easily set out to be the benchmark for what this film was going to be as it progressed. And it was my way of sort of identifying with the character as, as the movie went on. So I could keep coming back to this is stressful. It's anxiety inducing. Mm -hmm. there, there's a lot happening to this character and it seems like everything just goes wrong for him. And it does. Yeah. And yeah. It, it literally does. It never relents. I do want to say before we continue, one thing I thought that was going to happen while watching the first half hour is I was hoping for some sort of Midsommar kind of resol resolution uh, where she's kind of accepted and she kind of comes into her own at the end and there's, there's a resolve. In a twisted way. Yeah, in a <laughs> twisted way, exactly. But, but I was hoping that Bo would overcome his fears or, or find some inner strength or something. And, and he kind of does for like a second toward yeah. the end, I guess. But does, it, yeah. it's, well, it's, it's more ambiguous. I was hoping he would like, I don't know. I, think I, I was hoping it would be more yeah. blatant. And uh, it, it wasn't. And, and it would have made it, I think, a little bit more emotionally or psychologically impactful. Mm -hmm. If it was like there's like an overt shift in the end. In the, in the third act-ish. And we'll get to that point and I'll tell you why. But Sure. That's what I was thinking throughout the whole movie while I was watching it. Is I was hoping that he'd at some point like find the strength or the courage to perse Stand. persevere. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I totally get that. So anyway, <laughs> he's stressed. Yeah, and he's set on this quest, this fantastical odyssey, this journey across part of the country because he needs to get back to his mother who has had an accident of some kind. It's really unclear until the final part of the movie, but he is on this trip to get to her. It's actually not even that far. I think it's just like a few cities over, but he has to get to her. And so that is the motivating force behind this movie. The first act is him leaving basically. Uh, the second act is him being abducted by Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan uh, the third act of four is this incredible, like, uh, weird players in the forest kind of encounter where he it's, takes it's this kind of like an interlude to the, yeah, he takes this trip down a <laughs> storybook into, into the back woods, the back woods. backyard <laughs> woods from Amy Ryan's house yeah. and Nathan Lane's house. He runs into this troop and they, and he's also on TV the whole time like he's being watched or something yeah well that that gets into the conspiracy theory part that is it's like never really clear what's happening there but anyway in the fourth act he makes his way to his mother's house and uh yes he does let's at this point dish out the spoiler warning so we can talk about this film in all its glory okay uh here spoilers is spoiler warning go <laughs> Maybe don't watch Bo. Go watch Bo's Afraid. If you like us. If you like the way we talk about it, uh, just go watch yeah, it. Yeah, that's better. If you that's, like Ari Aster. That's well said. Um, anyway, Bo gets to his mother's house. Uh, he's too late for the funeral. It's 
you know, known that at this point that she's passed away and he's moving through her house. He How has, did she pass? Basil, yeah. Oh, her, she was, well, her capo was detated. <laughs> a chandelier <laughs> fell on her head and it exploded her head. It exploded her head. Is what Bill Hader The said. autopsy yeah. showed. Um, and he, at the, everyone's left the, you know, whatever you call the procession after the funeral, the wake or whatever. And Parker Posey rolls up and they have a sexual encounter because this is Bo's flame from his childhood. And, and Bo was told his whole life yeah. that if he ever has one orgasm, that he'll die because that's how his dad died. Yes. So there's a, a massive... <laughs> so they say. Massive uh, fear of being sexual at all that he has on top of the other stressors that he has in his life. Yeah. There's there's trauma, there's uh, pent-up sexual frustration, and all, anything you can imagine yeah. that... You know, alludes to being afraid. He's never done the deed. Never. Never passed the seed. <laughs> Until now. I, Parker I'm Posey really takes holding him, my tongue. Yeah. Parker yeah. takes him to bed and they and have this explosive coitus. She, and she's getting up there. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it was the upper level. Um, anyway, Joaquin. She's, one of them was having a great time. Bo, Joaquin, he's very afraid. He's deathly afraid that he's going to straight up die when he yeah. uh, orgasms. Uh, he doesn't. Instead, Parker dies. Yeah, that was so weird. Parker dies on top of Bo, yeah. and he doesn't realize it until he comes to... Uh, <laughs> and he's, he starts laughing, because he's like, oh, I'm not dead. Yeah, but then he sees her corpse locked Did you in say he comes to? <laughs> <laughs> he comes to... <laughs> Oh, no, I didn't mean it like that. I know you didn't, but you said it. It was perfect. <laughs> I wish I could have taken credit for it. Uh, <laughs> and, but he, he comes to, and uh, after his relief passes, after having not died, he realizes Parker died. He throws her off. Well, yeah. Rolls she, to the side of the bed. She's stiff, kind of like a, I don't know, like, like yeah, her, she's almost lo- like she was like a mannequin or something. Yeah, like... Isn't that rigor mortis? I don't know. She's locked. Oh, I have no idea. But as that, yeah, she just died. It is strange that she's locked in that <laughs> pose. She's Parker Posey. She's locked. She's in that locked pose. her Posey. <laughs> and Bo rolls off the bed and in walks his mother. His mother, who's alive, back from the dead, revealed that she faked her death by killing her. Bill Hader. Decade? No, not Bill. Her decades long. And loyal. Oh, that's right. Uh, house, house servant house person made. Yeah, yeah. Who she tells Bo was more than happy to go along with it because her family was financially compensated. Everything's fucked. Anyway, the rest of the film deals with them uncovering the nature of their relationship, which is super weird because she's like gaslighting him the whole time about the way that Bo treated her when they were growing up and never giving her the love, reciprocating all the love that she gave him. And then she ends up taking Bo into the into the attic, because Bo. Well, she the whole movie they're having like, he's having these these images, and he's afraid of this. And you're seeing it kind of from his POV, like first person perspective, almost like a video game of him in like a bathroom, and then there's this oh kind, yeah this kind of obscure dark room with like a light coming through the tops, like through like the ceiling or something. It's a memory. Yeah. And then it turns out to be this memory of the, in this house and the stairs that drop down from the ceiling going into the attic. 
and she kind of like forces him to go up to the up to the attic. So it seems because he wants a, as to know. like punishment or something. Well, yeah, no, no. He when he was younger, better. I'm saying. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it it what it wasn't explicitly stated, but you kind of got the point that she used to lock him up there. Right. You know. And again, we're not sure how much of this is actually true yes. within the story. What's about to be said? You mean? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> Bo wants to know desperately about his father because that's been an unanswered question for him. And we had a, a cut character who was like, you know, who actually Bo thinks might have been his father. Oh yeah, who approaches him earlier in the in film the, in the forest part. Yeah, and so Bo yeah. Bo has to know, and his mother didn't want to tell him. She's like, "All right, you want to know?" So she brings him up into the attic. She says he's locked up there, right? Like he's chained up there. Well, or but I I I think she's staying by her story that the father passed away, but she's referring to what's being up in the attic as like the secret. Yeah, which is implied. That the monster in the addict is the father, but it's weird because he's a penis and not a person. In the addict is revealed to be a giant, grotesque penis monster, like very large. It is just a cock and balls, and it has a mouth and it is screaming. And also in the adjacent corner is like an emaciated version of Bo. Mm. Nothing is making sense at this point. Right. We sit on that scene <laughs> for a minute. Bo is I'm having. Really, a I'm really glad you said scene. Bo is having a panic attack, <laughs> and then out of nowhere barges in uh, like a hitman character oh, from right. Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan's house, uh, who is like an ex-soldier yeah. with PTSD. PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> he barges in through the window, kills the penis monster, and then uh, is killed by the penis monster. <laughs> <laughs> Bo, Bo exits the addict. He's very distraught at this point. Yeah. As you can imagine. And he, you know, he, he and his mother finished their conversation. Bo finally has had enough cause he's, you know, at wit's end. And he, she's very manipulative. Yeah. I was hoping it cannot be understated. I was hoping at this point, and this is what I was saying earlier, that he was going to turn on his mom after she pushed him too far emotionally. Uh huh. She's, she's verbally abusing him like heavily, like to the point of manipulation and, and well, um, yeah, it's psychological and it's not just gaslight. It's psychological. It's like, it's literal, it's literal abuse. It's verbal abuse. And I was hoping he would like finally stand up and turn on her and actually kill her. <laughs> well, he gets close. Yeah, or yeah. he does more or less. Yeah, and that's what was weird though. Then she like woke up like she was fine and she didn't actually die or something. Well, she didn't wake up. But the final scene is is the most. Uh, that's why. That's why I was confused. Yeah. If he would have killed her, I would have felt much better about the movie as a whole. Well, he did. That's why I'm saying like the but, final but scene. She, but she like woke up like like almost like she was dead like a ghost or something. And no, no, she died there in the plants and continued to talk to him. No, the the only the, the next time we see her, she's at the uh, oh. the hearing. She doesn't get up, but the hearing is the most dream state scene of the film. Yeah. Anyway, he strangles his mother and she dies, and Bo walks out of the house uh, in a state of shock. He's completely catatonic but he's just walking off yeah in. super catatonic and he the final scene or sequence of this film is Bo walks off from the estate into a boat rolls off into a lake and is moving out further and further into the water comes upon this weird like island structure and he rolls into it like storybook island at Disneyland yeah and he ends up in this kind of amphitheater 
Yeah. Uh, and he's surrounded by a stadium of yeah. people. And it, this whole encounter is revealed to be, it, it's definitely not happening in real life because just the whole thing is absurd. But it's revealed to be like his trial yeah, uh, for being him and for the events of the film and his entire life. Right. And that's where you have Richard Kind as his mother, Mona's lawyer, and Mona's there and <laughs> on one side. And then you have the entire stadium full of people watching. There's a jumbotron above Bo in the middle uh, playing the whole thing. And then on the other side, you never see him, but someone way over there is representing Bo as his defense. And that person eventually is pushed to his death, Midsummer style, and crushes on the rocks. But Bo is on trial here for basically being essentially for not like not courageous. Yeah. He's on for it. Bo is on trial for, for all of his perceived faults. Yes. His own projected yeah. faults. Um, it's like, he, it's like he's putting himself on trial. Yeah. And yeah. at the fo- at the center of that is his mother's perceived yeah. lack of, uh, re- you know, returned love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this whole time, this scene goes on for a few minutes and the boat that he's on is rocking. And eventually he is deemed to be, you know, he loses the trial more or less. And, but by the end of that, Bo is essentially... <laughs> he does lose the trial. <laughs> Bo is essentially um, sentenced to death, and the boat flips, and, you know, he's... He, you like, know. struggles. Yeah. There's a little bit of struggling under the boat. Yeah. You, you hear him, and then all it goes quiet. And, and, and then the credits roll. Well, interestingly, it goes quiet. It just hangs on the boat, capsized. No more bubbles coming up from the water. And the crowd starts to leave in the amphitheater, and the lights turn on. In the theater, in the amphitheater, but at the same time, so the credits start to roll over that image as the image is still on screen. At the same time, in our specific theater that we were watching this movie in, the lights turned on at the exact same time as the amphitheater lights turning on. Did you notice that? I did. I don't know if that's consistent among I don't think it happened in any other showing. I think it just happened at the Spectrum where we saw it. Yeah. But I thought that I was like, what did they time that? Because that was impeccable. Yeah. Anyway, it was super cool because it was like almost like we were the ones watching him and judging him and (laughs) exiting the theater. Well, yeah, it was super meta, I think. And and Ari intended for that um, presentation. But I was going to say one more thing because you mentioned uh, the end and how you were slightly disappointed that he didn't have Mm -hmm. that full... um, you know, Florence Pugh moment from the end of Midsommar where he takes charge of his life. But there was a moment before the boat flipped and he's, you know, presumed dead at the end of that trial where uh, for me it was that because he has this look on his face that is not just total resignation to everything. (laughs) Right. But it's like, for me, I interpreted it as a coming to terms with his circumstances and almost like, like uh, to take to. it one step further, like he was taking ownership finally yeah. of his reality, um, only for him to either, you know, to die or whatever. It, there's a lot of people that have different opinions on where this film stops being, you know, rooted in reality. Sure. Some people say it was in the first act. But regardless, I like to interpret this film in the way that Bo, wherever he ended up, he finally was able to process in some way you know, the trauma and the grief and, and move past it. 
Um, and for hmm. me, I got that all from the last look on his face before the boat flips, because he turns from yeah. he turns from begging yeah. his mother and the terror and like the the, the juvenile kind of right. breakdown he was in, and he just sits. He like he just like sobers up and he sits there or he stands there, and it's like mm-hmm. that's the last we see of him before he flips. So I don't disagree with you. I just don't think it was as clean as. Midsummer was none of it was yeah <laughs> and it wasn't as clean even as hereditary so with those two films being like very tight like the script was tight not not to say that the script was bad here i'm not saying that it was excellent in fact um it just felt like it was more open-ended as far as yeah. the story that he wanted to tell and i kind of just wish i that wish it- that it was tighter a little less ambiguous yeah and it's not it's not even that i don't like ambiguous things i do i just uh it could have it could have been a little bit more weighty yeah if he would have been like standing on the boat being like no like i just killed my mom like fuck all y'all yeah, if he just said fuck yeah, you. yeah yeah and then he died like still he was killed for sure then it would have been like okay he really came to a place he came to yeah a place yeah where he where he had resolve like internal resolve perseverance and and then you know the story's over but it, it wasn't that so but anyway that that was my like i'm really nitpicking it's, well, still, it's still like a 9.5 well to, to that point i would say it's, it's possible that conversely ari's point was that yeah. he didn't overcome yeah you know that true which and because, I think a, because that, a lot of people that are stuck in that just yeah. i mean if we're speaking about realism and he maybe maybe ari's basing this off of his own social anxiety or someone he knows or just the internal feelings I think every human being feels like there is no resolve there. Oftentimes people, people continue to be stuck in, in their fears and their ways. And there is never really an understanding. So, so I, maybe, maybe that's the point, you know, uh, I just, in the suspended belief that we find ourselves in when we watch films, especially auteur films, I always want just like a little bit of hyper realism and and i i i'm not one to always enjoy like a realistic approach to battling fears i want people to always overcome that's like the story i want to watch yeah 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 Yeah. well i my own personal taste though and even though i don't necessarily feel the same i definitely would say that i (laughs) think midsummer and hereditary are still my favorite of the three yeah but i dearly loved this movie just because it was so wild and and I love it, not in a pretentious way, but I love that Ari was like, I'm going to make a movie that definitely is not going to be, you know, uh, unanimously praised. Yeah. Because really the other two, or especially Hereditary, were just like, and I don't think he expected it, but everyone was like, this is the best horror movie, yada, yada. So and he wanted to be like, yeah. I'm, I, I want to make a movie that's going to upset people. And I think that's okay. so awesome. <laughs> and you, you think that was his goal? I Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Because he's, and he's openly, I'm sure he's said as much, but he is, I've definitely heard him say that he's delighted in the polarizing really? effect that mm. this movie has had. And he is, that that was his intention, not necessarily to make the movie solely for like the split response. He He wanted to make his movie for his own reasons and for, you know, to, to make it stand on its own legs. But the fact that it had that polarizing response, I think was something that he was delighted by. And I mean, I'll say, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think, you know, say it again. Denny Villeneuve might still be my favorite filmmaker, 
but I would call Ari Aster my favorite like artist or auteur. Yeah. Like the person that is going to, there will never be a movie that I won't see. And I feel like that I won't enjoy at this point by Ari. Right. Because he is on my wavelength in, or I'm on, sorry, I'm on his wavelength in such a way that is insane to me. Like you were saying earlier with relating to the themes and stuff. Yeah. Even literally the, the things that were happening in the movie. Sure. I feel like I've never been so, and I don't want to sound, you know, like a, like an internet warrior here, but represented by. Uh, an artist, you know, and Ari's telling the stories that I would want to tell if I was in his position. Like I saw Midsommar and I was like, I, that's literally the movie I would make if I had the money and time and talent uh, to do that. <laughs> yeah. That's the movie I would make. And I would love to make movies like Bo and Hereditary. Um, so I will never stop supporting and uh, praising this guy, even if he makes a total stinker next. Just And I think he's announced his next project and I'm so excited for that too. The the mystical Western set during COVID. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. I just like, saw that. Like pop off King. You just do whatever you want. <laughs> I will be there. I'll mystical you- Western set during COVID 19. That's wild. I, yeah. I don't, I think there was a different adjective, but no, oh, you're right. You're that's, right. That's though. the spirit yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> uh, even the shorts that I've seen from him, they're just like, they're insane, but they, so I'm just ranting now, but this is the last thing I'll say is they so beautifully portray the absurdity of our reality yeah, in such a way. And that's why it turns a lot of people off. I think is because it, it causes them to reflect on things that are uncomfortable for them. Yeah. And I think that's the whole purpose of art is to disturb the people that are comfortable and comfort the people that are disturbed. And I'm just like, I'm disturbed. So it comforts me. Sure. <laughs> and it's inspiring. I don't know. Sure. Sure. To break those, uh, structures and and uh conventions yeah of storytelling like Bo doesn't really work in a lot of ways but it's just it's cool and it's and it's fantastic and it's super funny too like it's hilarious yeah, because it's so crazy yeah yeah it is yeah. just it's like it's hilarious the things that happen he in really, this movie he really does a good job with the humor in this movie I, yeah that's a good point yeah and i was loving i think that was the first time i had taken you with some other friends and i had a guy who's a super casual friend of mine Turned to me like 30 minutes in the movie. And he goes, Gabe, what did you bring us to? What is this? <laughs> yeah. And I'm just sitting there with the biggest shit eating grin on my face. Cause this is like everything. Yeah. And I don't care if they don't like it, yeah. but I'm making them watch it yeah, because yeah. I feel like it was for your birthday. It was, yeah. it came out right around my birthday. Yeah. I think we, it, saw, we saw it like on your birthday, the day after it was like the day after, I think, um, something like that. But <laughs> That was my birthday gift to me was making all these people that I care about yeah. who probably wouldn't like it as much as me. Yeah. Steven excluded. Um, I do care about Steven, but he would still appreciate it. I, I loved it. Like, None of my other friends, some of them actually, I was surprised that it wasn't as torched a response as, uh, as I expected. Some of them were like, yeah, there was some interesting things happening there, but, uh, yeah, no one probably likes this movie as much as I did. <laughs> that might be true. Actually. And I that's and I still like Midsummer more. I'm yeah. like that is. I know how much you maybe, like Midsummer. Maybe my favorite movie. You go back and watch. Of the 21st century. Or, sorry, go back and listen to our Midsummer podcast. It's like episode 12 or 13 or something like that. So I think I will actually. I'm at this moment. It is my favorite 21st century film. Midsummer. Or maybe 11. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> with that being said, can we play a piece of music here from the score? Wait before you cut. Uh, another amazing score by Bobby Krillick, a.k.a. the Hacks and Cloak. He did Midsommar. 
not Colin Stetson who did Hereditary, but Bobby's back for Bo's Afraid. Bobby's back? The score is so good in this movie. It had another, all of Ari's films end with this, this wild third act. Like the very final track yeah. is this long and kind of, it represents the film, the journey of the movie. Yeah. Throughout this podcast, Gabe has slowly been taking off uh, an article of clothing. <laughs> I'm and naked he, now. He's now fully naked. There's always a naked guy <laughs> in an Ari Aster <laughs> podcast or, or movie. Uh, all right. Well, here's the piece of music from Bob is Back. Yeah, the Hacks and Cloak. <laughs>